We'll be reading this morning in 2 John, verses 7 through 13. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. Whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Welcome to Sojourn. So glad you're here. My name is Dylan. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, we're concluding Second John this morning. Uh, of course, it's a short one anyway, so we, we amazingly stretched it into uh, two sermons in the first place. Uh, but next week, Pastor Jay will be preaching Third John, so we will finish out the epistles of John. So, but for me, this is my, my last time in John for a while, and, and I think I'm going to miss John. Uh, I've really enjoyed going through First John and Second John. I, I don't miss him enough to, to launch into Revelation, if that's what you're thinking. But still, man, it has been uh, so fun to, to kind of get to know John more through these letters and epistles that he's written. And, and you got to wonder at this point in time in 2 John, uh, John is, is an aged apostle at this point. He, I mean, this is years after Jesus has, has been crucified and was raised. And, and as an aged apostle, he got to see a lot of things that the other disciples, the other apostles didn't get to see. He, he got to see some things lived out. And, and you have to wonder at times, like, how many times did John, this aged apostle, look at all the things that were going on around him and think, oh man, that's just as Jesus said it would be. You wonder how many times he had that satisfaction, that joy, maybe even that confidence, like, yeah, Jesus warned us about that, Jesus told us that was going to happen, and sure enough, here it is, going just as Jesus said. He could have made that remark regarding the context for which he writes 2 John. In 2 John, there's, there's things going on that, that makes him right. He, he wrote, we talked about this last week, he wrote to encourage them to walk in the truth and, and to love one another well, to, to live according to truth, to walk it out on the ground with one another. But he also writes, this is kind of the second half, this is our portion this morning, and this is probably why he, he writes this letter specifically is because there are many deceivers, and they're alive and at large all over the world. And he knows that, that they're going to impact this church that he writes to, this people that he loves. So this is why he writes. And as he writes, maybe he was thinking, man, this is just as Jesus said. In Mark chapter 13, you recall the words of Jesus? He warned his disciples, he told them that false Christs and false prophets will arise. It's going to happen. So what did he tell them? Be on guard. As John sees this played out, perhaps likely his, his strength, or the, his faith was strengthened as he sees, yes, 
many deceivers. But Jesus told us this was going to happen. He, it's just as he said, this isn't unexpected. And, and we were on guard because we, we heeded his word. It was just as he told us. And John wants this church that he writes to here in 2 John, he wants them to be on guard. He wants them to be strengthened in their faith. And so he writes to them that they might be on guard against false teachers and their false teaching. And so he gives two commands here. Two imperatives for this church in this last section of 2 John to help them to be on guard, to help them know how to deal with false teaching and how to deal with false teachers. He says, watch yourselves. And he says, don't receive a false teacher. Those are the two imperatives that I think the last portion of 2 John is kind of structured around. Now, if we look in verse 12, that's skipping to the end, he says that he has much, much to write and he'd rather come face to face. It reminds us that because he thinks that face to face would be better, that the matter which he writes is, is an urgent matter. It's like, I want to I come there, but this needs to get to you first. This, this needs to get there because something's going on. It's urgent. But I also want us to see that the, the tone of, of this letter it is not one of panic. It's not a, a tone of alarm. John, as this aged apostle, gives steady instruction to this church. He first instructed them to walk in love, to walk according to the truth. And this is of great importance, especially because of what he's going to talk about starting in verse 7. Verse 7, he says that many deceivers have gone out into the world. Many deceivers. It's important that we walk according to the truth and that we walk in love with one another because there are many deceivers out in the world. Many and he says that they are deceivers. In other words, it's, uh, they have sinister motives, and they're probably kind of slick with how they do things. And so it's not just blatantly obvious that, that they are what John is going to describe them as. And you see lots of warnings in the New Testament to be on guard, to watch out for false teachers. Watch yourselves. Be careful out there, because this is going to happen. And so this is, again, not out of the norm. There are many, he says, though. Many out there that are deceiving. And who are these deceivers that John specifically has in mind, that he is particularly concerned about in this situation? He, he tells us they are those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. The, the doctrine that's being manipulated here by these deceivers is the, the doctrine of Christ, the the. the, the who Jesus is, his identity. Specifically, he says that, that Jesus has come in the flesh. They don't confess that he is the one who is coming in the flesh, who has come in the flesh. And so specifically, in the doctrine of Christ, they're taking aim at the humanity of Christ, the humanity of Jesus, and it is being denied by these deceivers. Now, John has been really clear about the, the nature of Jesus and who he is. In John chapter 1, verse 1 of, of his gospel, where he wrote to show them the, the very character and nature of Jesus, who he is. Here's what he says about Jesus, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So here's the nature of Jesus. He is God, and all things were created through him. So Jesus is God. But he tells us a little bit more about his nature in chapter 1, verse 14. What does this word do? This, this one who's co-eternal with the Father, through whom all things are created. Who is he? He's the one who became flesh and dwelt among us. So we have Jesus here in chapter 1 of John's gospel as being fully God, co-eternal with the Father, creating 
All things created through him. And then we have Jesus, who's also the one who took on flesh. Fully human. Fully man. So Jesus is the one who is truly God and and also truly man. Both in one. He is fully God and fully man. And yet he is just one person. He is not to be divided out. And the deceivers that John is speaking of here don't confess that Jesus came in the flesh. They deny that Jesus was truly human. Perhaps they're okay with him being truly God, but, but they do deny that he was truly human. Perhaps they were like the early heretic that we've talked about a few times in 1 John. Serentius was this early heretic that said um, that the Christ came upon the person Jesus uh, on his, in, during his baptism and then departed from him before his crucifixion. That was an early heresy. Perhaps there's some flavor of that about that John has in mind. Or maybe they're teaching that Jesus wasn't truly human. He just appeared to be a human. That was also an early heresy. There are lots of heresies that were like that, spun off like that. Could have been any of those things. We, we don't have the specifics. All we know is that they deny They don't confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. They're denying the humanity of Jesus. And and here's what's going on, that this is a doctrine of no small importance. In other words, the doctrine of the humanity of Christ is not on the periphery. It's not some fringe uh, doctrine or fringe piece of theology that you may need to know or may not need to know. It is very central. It's the heart of Christianity. It's the heart of the gospel. See, John shows that this is a vital matter by saying that those who don't confess that Jesus has come in the flesh are what? Antichrist. And while he's used this term a few times, so maybe he can throw it out there, it's not used very often. And it's certainly not a light term. Antichrist is strong opposition to Jesus. Makes me think about Venom and Anti-Venom, right? Not Marvel characters, that's not what I'm talking about. Sometimes I do that, not here though. I'm thinking like Snake Venom. And, and anti-venom. What, what does the anti-venom do? It prevents the, the venom from, from taking full effect, or it can even reverse the effects of venom. And, and that is the way that John is using antichrist here. That the antichrists are working to prevent the work of Christ. They are working to reverse the effects of the real living Christ. And so those who don't confess the humanity of Jesus, that Jesus came in the flesh, that he is fully man, they're not neutral Christ, they're antichrist. In their denial of the humanity of Jesus, they're working against the effects of the work of Jesus. They're working against Jesus. And you might think, all right, we get this, Jesus was fully man, but but what practical difference does it make if we lose Jesus' humanity? It doesn't seem that his deity, his godhood, is being denied. So he's God. We gave him that, right? What difference does it make if we deny his humanity? Or is it that big of a matter? And I think John gives a resounding yes by saying, yeah, the one who denies his coming in the flesh is Antichrist. That's one of his answers. Like, yeah, it's a big deal. They're Antichrist. He writes a gospel and he writes epistles that people might know the the true nature of Jesus. They might believe in his name and they might know that they have life in his name and they might be sustained in his name. He wants the nature of Jesus to be clear and to be known because he knows that there's no dividing up Jesus. You can't say, well, I'm, I'm all on board with Jesus being God, but I'm not so sure about Jesus being man. 
To accept the deity of Jesus and deny the humanity of Jesus is to deny Jesus. You can't divide him out. Or you could go the other way. To, to accept the humanity of Jesus and deny the deity of Jesus is to deny Jesus. Is to not have Jesus. You have all of him or you have nothing. And the humanity of Jesus is essential and practical. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2 says, Since therefore, verse 14, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, speaking of Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. We want him to do that, and to do that he had to take on flesh. And to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. We want to be delivered from your slavery to sin and death. We need a fully human Jesus. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. In the humanity of Jesus, what's on the line is Jesus' priesthood to offer a sacrifice for our sins, to represent humanity, sinful humanity for a holy God, to be an advocate before God. So what's on the line in, in the humanity of Jesus, according to Hebrews, according to the scripture, is salvation is on the line here. Sinful humanity needs a representative before our holy God who can fully identify with them, who can fully represent them. In other words, they, we needed one who to be fully human. All of us, every human created, we're in the first Adam. We're, we're fallen and have a fallen nature. He was our representative head and, and he failed and, and we all have inherited his sin nature and what we need is another like Adam, a second Adam. One who won't fall but will succeed where Adam failed and one who can represent us as our representative head and be the, the firstborn of the new creation. And that's what we have in Jesus, joy to the world. The Lord has come in the person of Jesus. The word took on flesh and dwelt among us. And he came to seek and save the lost in flesh. He came to rescue from God's wrath. He came to save us from sin and death. And salvation is for those who depend upon Jesus. And that salvation depends upon him coming in the flesh. So Jesus' humanity is more than just essential for salvation, according to Hebrews, though. Did you hear what it said? It's part of everyday living in terms of our approach to Jesus. Now we have one who can sympathize with us. I mean, everyone, it's just naturalness, wants someone who can understand them, who can sympathize with them, who can identify with their problems, their needs, their, their life, who really gets them. Right? There's probably a million like teenage pop songs about this, like someone who really gets me. But it's a bit elusive in human relationships, is it not? To have someone who really understands, who gets you, or that you think understands and knows and gets you, but also at the same time can receive you and accept you and love you. But what a friend we have in Jesus. Not only is everything, including us, made through him, so he knows us as sovereign creator. 
He, he knows our design. He knows our nature. He knows our makeup. He knows tiny little particles about us. He knows more about us in one sense than we know about ourselves, way more. So not only is he this God who knows us and knows how we're made and knows our design and knows how all this stuff goes, but he's also the one who came in the flesh and became well acquainted with the state of humanity. He knows hunger. He knows thirst. He knows being tired. He knows all these things. And he went further than us by not giving in to temptation. So he knows the weight of temptation, the full weight, because he actually overcame it. Whereas we fail underneath it, he holds underneath the weight of temptation and doesn't fail. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He knows all those things. He even bore our sin to the point of death, even death on a cross. He knows our humanity. So if you're thinking, man, no one gets me. No one understands my situation because of my suffering, because of my pain, because of my temptations. They're unique. And we need to think again because we need to look to Jesus. Here's the one who fully gets us. He's sovereign God and the divine person. What a friend we have in Jesus. And Hebrews' encouragement with this, one who is like us in every respect, and John's encouragement is to approach the throne of grace, to be able to go to him. That's, that's practical every day. We need Jesus. You need his humanity there. Hebrews says that we approach the throne of grace boldly to find, us, find help in our time of need. John talks about Jesus as this advocate with the Father. We, we need Jesus to be fully man. So saying that Jesus came in the flesh is not just some stuffy doctrine of no importance or no value. It's an absolutely vital doctrine that should lead us to approach the throne of grace whenever we need help, which is constant. It should lead us to adoration, that we have one who knows us fully, gets us completely, and yet would still represent us before a holy God. Now, John is certainly firm in knowing, in his knowledge, of saying, like, this is a vital doctrine. That's why he says in verse 7, those who don't confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh are antichrist. A deceiver. And that's why he's concerned enough to command them in verse 8. Verse 8, he says, Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. He says, Many deceivers have gone out into the world, and what he doesn't do is he doesn't start giving them doomsday preparation instructions. And there's many deceivers out there, now let's get your doomsday prep going, because we know. We pulled out the end time charts and it's time, right? He doesn't do that. Doesn't give him any end time charts. Doesn't stay, you know, like you need to get your preparations ready. You need to get everything in hand. What he does, driven by his adoration of this Jesus, is he trusts in him and he calls them not to panic, but to watch. He's not alarmed. There's confidence here. He puts it in Jesus and he says to watch. And he says, you all, the, you, the church, you guys, watch. This is a church-wide watching to guard against deception. All play a part in this so that what? So they may not lose what we have worked for, he says. Well, what have they worked for? They've worked to know the truth. This is 2 John, the beginning of 2 John. They've worked to know the truth, to walk in it, to walk in love with one another. That's what they've been working for. And if they continue in it, as he rejoiced that they were doing in verse 4, they were walking in the truth and he rejoiced in it. If they continue in it, if they continue walking in the truth, it says you won't lose what we have worked for. But if they don't walk in the truth and they are deceived, then I think they'll be, uh, could be classified as 
what he does in 1 John. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, he, he says to that audience, Children, it is the last hour, and as you've heard that the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, what would they have done? They would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. So I think what John would be saying here in 2 John is to say that if they are deceived, they don't continue walking in the truth, the thing that we've worked for, then they show themselves to be not in the truth themselves. Now, one uncommentator, I think, sums it up well when he says that he has worked, speaking of John, so that they might understand the gospel, repent and believe, and persevere in the faith. If they turn away from the gospel to false teaching, they will show themselves to be unbelievers and thus squander what John and others within the church have worked for. John desires them to persevere and thus win the full reward of their faith on the final day. We need to make sure that we're not confused with what John is saying here. Because John isn't confused. John is not confused on salvation. He knows that salvation is all of grace. Right? He, he knows John 3.16. Right? He, he knows John chapter 3, right? That, that if you want to be born again, or you one must be born again to see the kingdom, and one is only born from above. He, he knows that. He, he wrote it down. He, he knows John 14, verse 6, that Jesus said, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He knows that. He also knows John 15, right, where it says, 15, verse 5, that apart from me, Jesus says, you can do nothing, especially gain your salvation, right? He, he knows all those things, so he's not off on salvation. But he has also been really clear, especially in 1 John, that salvation, one's belief in Jesus, is displayed in a life of faith and a life of faith that perseveres in the teaching of Jesus until the end. That's what a Christian does. And that perseverance of faith includes not being deceived, not listening to false teaching. And so he says, watch. Because that watching and that command to watch is part of the means that those who trust in the teaching of Jesus, that's part of the means that's going to be used on them to keep them persevering in the faith. The warning to watch is part of the means being used to keep them walking in the truth and walking in love. Because verse 9, everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. I mean, that's what's what's at stake here. This is why he calls them to watch, because what's on the line is that you don't have God. Continuing in verse 9, he goes on to say, whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. Rejecting or not abiding in, as he would say it, not abiding in the teaching of Christ, not abiding in the reality, the truth, that Jesus has come in the flesh means you don't have God. I mean, he's that clear and distinct here. If you don't have the Son, you don't have God. If you're wrong on Jesus, you're wrong on God. There's no way around that for John. To reject that Jesus came in the flesh, that he is fully human, The clear teaching of the apostles, the clear teaching of the scripture is to not have God. It's a doctrine you need to be clear on. But he says the other thing, right? To abide in this teaching, to abide in the reality, the truth, to believe in, to remain in, to trust and rely on the teaching that Jesus has come in the flesh, that he is fully man and fully God. To abide in that is to have the Father and the Son. And what more could there be to have? He says, if you abide in this, you have the Father and the Son. What else could you be looking for? There it is. 
And so it's in a sense of like adoration and fullness that he calls them to watch for false teaching because you don't need anything else. If you've got this teaching, you've got what you need. You have the Father, you have the Son. Again here, I think that John agrees with the writer of Hebrews. That again, believers are those who persevere. In Hebrews chapter 3, verse 14, the writer of Hebrews says, For we have come to share in Christ. If indeed, what do we do? We hold it. We hold our original confidence to the end. John here says something similar, like abide in the teaching of of Christ. Now notice in in both of those places, the, the centrality of the gospel of Jesus, the centrality of teaching, the centrality of what has been passed down from the apostles concerning the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the person and work of Jesus. It is to be held that's Hebrews, or abided in, that's John. Perhaps the, the Antichrist, those who were denying that Jesus had come in the flesh, thought that they were too advanced for a Jesus who would come in the flesh. That somehow he would soil himself by becoming human. That how could a God do such a thing? Or they thought, well, we're beyond the thinking of the apostles and what they have passed down, and so we can move on to something greater and better. But John says, abide in that teaching that's already been given. Hebrews say, hold firm to that confidence that you had at the start. John is clear that there's no advancing beyond the teaching of Jesus and the apostles' teaching that they have given to them. Any advancement, now we're not talking advancement in terms of greater knowledge of Jesus, understanding who he is, we can always grow there. He's not talking about that, but any advancement moving beyond what's been taught, moving beyond what's revealed to us in the scripture, is not advanced at all, but antichrist. It's not moving further forward. It's going beyond what was once delivered for all the saints. It's to be outside of Christ. And one uh, theologian called the, the saving doctrine of Jesus the soul of the church. I think that's a great description to think about. And, and, and if that's true, the doctrine of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus that John references here, this is not something that we advance beyond or that we need to somehow evolve to fit the times. This is something we abide in. That's what John says. Abide in this. That's what he wants for them. And if we're to abide in the teaching of Christ, if we're to abide in the teaching that the apostles handed down, the gospel once delivered for all the saints, if we're to abide in that, then the word truly must be the soul of the church. From start to finish, the, the scripture is pointing us to Christ, that we might know him, we might love him, adore him, have life in his name, might have eternal life in knowing him. So whether we're in in Genesis or Hebrews or 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, we're we're not moving and we shouldn't move beyond the teaching of Jesus. There's no advancement beyond that. There's growth and depth going down into it, but we're not advancing beyond it because this is the very soul of the church, the teaching of Jesus. We're remaining in it. We want to abide in it. And if we abide in it and we must abide in it, then we're going to need to know it. I mean, good thing we have the word that reveals it, that has been passed down to us from the apostles all the way down so that it could be our foundation and so that the church truly could be this this pillar of truth that Paul describes it to be. We're going to have to know it. We're going to have to preach it to ourselves. We're going to have to rehearse it when we gather with one another so that we pray it, so that we sing it, so that we see it in the ordinances, so that we can live this out with one another. The teaching of Christ, the, the very gospel of Jesus, needs to be in the very fabric of our lives together to abide in it. And if one abides in this teaching, 
John says you have the Father and you have the Son. And again, what more could there be? John has told us that this is eternal life, knowing the Father and the Son. So in in abiding in this teaching, we're, we're talking about having eternal life, having as sinful people, having God himself. Where else would we want to go? What other teaching we would want to abide in? What could top that teaching? But he says that those who, who don't abide, they show that they don't have the Father and the Son, that they never had the Father and the Son. And so there's, there's a lot on the line. And because the stakes couldn't be higher with the teaching of Jesus and, and the doctrine of who he is and that he came in the flesh, John instructs them in verse 10. Again, this isn't a, an important matter, so the way you deal with not only the false teaching, but the false teachers matters. Verse 10, he says, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, the teaching that Jesus has come in the flesh, the, the true teaching of who Jesus is and what he's done, the teaching of the gospel, the message of eternal life, if, if someone brings you a different message, a, doesn't bring this teaching, here's what you're to do, don't receive him into your house or give him any greeting. Whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Remember 1 John was this book that John wrote about these, these antichrists that were among them that went out from them. They were going out and that kind of rattled that audience to think like, man, these people were with us and now they're not. And they're saying something different about Jesus. In 2 John, it's kind of reversed. There's many deceivers that have gone out into the world and John is concerned that they're going to come in and, and gain a foothold within the church. And, and a little leaven can leaven the whole lump and so he wants to warn them. And he, he, he says, watch yourselves and, and he gives more. Hey, don't receive these people. He describes how to deal with them because he's assuming they're going to come. This is going to happen. You're going to encounter this. There's many of them out there. Chances are pretty high that the church is, is going to be one of the targets. John knows that one of the strategies of the enemy is to plant the bad seed along with the good seed. Sow it. Just throw it out there. Get it out there. And, and there are many deceivers out there doing this very thing. They are sowing deception, sowing some teaching that's antichrist. John knows that this is going on. But he also knows this. You can almost sense like it's, there's some implied confidence with how he says this because he knows that this church has what, it's, what it needs to spot the difference so that they can obey his instructions in verse 10. They, they can know who not to receive and who not to greet because they can know the difference because, again, he has given them what they needed. He has passed down to them the gospel. We have so much given to us in this word that lays open before us. I mean, we have it written down and collected together so that we might know God, love God, know who he is and what he's like and what he does, so that when deception comes along, we can say, it's like, something's off here, something's wrong here, and then we get back and we look to the word, and like, yeah, there we can identify it. And John has this confidence that this church can do that. They have what they need. If the word is the soul of the church, then it's going to show up. And it's going to show up in their hospitality, in their reception or not reception, their greeting and not greeting of one another. We know that, that our culture is slightly different, but, but hospitality in this culture especially was vitally important. It was a big matter. And so receiving people that would just come into towns was a big deal. The, there's no like uh, Motel 6s uh, in the towns that, that John is writing to. And there may be some inns, right? There's no room in the inn for Jesus. So there may be some people that would 
allow some people to say, but those, those could be a little bit shady in terms of reputation and what they'd actually offer, right? And, and so hospitality to strangers, to those coming around, was, was a big matter. And what they would do is they would welcome people into their homes. This then meant that their, their homes were, were places of, of welcoming, greeting, and, and of support, right? You, you think about Jesus. He, he sent out the disciples and he said, go, go find places of peace, if they welcome you, like, stay there. And, and what are they doing there? They're launching their ministry out from there, sharing the gospel to those in that town. But if they don't welcome you, like, shake the dust off your feet. So in other words, those homes mattered, and they were a place of support and encouragement, of ministry, of, of gospel ministry, of launch and support. So John is, is getting along those lines. He is not suggesting that, that this people, this church, stop showing any sort of concern for strangers, or outsiders. He's not saying stop showing love to them or, or the right kind of support for people. He isn't even saying not to host someone who has differing views as if to cut off all sort of evangelism that could be had by having people into your home. He isn't saying, hey, if they disagree with you about Jesus, don't even eat with them. There is a difference though. These people are claiming something about Jesus. They are saying that they know something. They're, they're probably claiming to be uniquely Christian and yet they're claiming something different about Jesus. That already is different. But he's not saying don't provide a place for anybody, like a home. But he is saying don't provide a place, a home of ministry launch, of ministry support, of ministry encouragement for false teachers who are propagating false teaching. And I think that this is easily, again, this is a letter that's written to this elect lady and her children, written to the church, a church. This is easily extended to the church. And perhaps the, the primary application starts there rather than individual homes. To say, church, don't, don't welcome in and receive someone who would teach something different about Jesus. That's not to be known among you. Don't receive them. Don't welcome them in. Don't give them a place of, of support and encouragement to launch out a, a ministry now, again, here's where there's some overlap, though, that, that at times, and perhaps maybe this is John's audience, the, the home and the church might have been the same place. So you have a unique setting there, too, don't you, that, that he maybe is saying that very thing. Don't welcome into your homes because we know that your home is being used as this place where corporate worship is happening. And so be really especially careful about that. Receiving them into their homes would suggest encouragement, would suggest like-mindedness, would suggest solidarity with false teachers and support their false teaching. And so he says, don't receive them in that way. There's a responsibility for this church to make sure they're not supporting false teaching. And it's for them to own. They are to watch together. They are to not receive together. Those who abide in Jesus' teaching of who Jesus is and what he has done couldn't support those who denied that Jesus came in the flesh. Then be supporting something that is antichrist. Indeed, John would say it that very way, like you're supporting antichrist. He says not even to greet them. Do you see the end of verse 10 and verse 11? Don't even give him a greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Yikes. Better be careful with who we say hello to. Is that, is that what we're getting at? Well, John writes again. He's writing to a church. He's, he's writing to Christians who would, as Christians, like to greet one another in Christian affection. Indeed, that's the very heart of, of what God has put in them, that they start moving out in love towards others, and they would want to kind of naturally, by the Spirit of God in them, want to greet people with that affection. In Christian greetings, what would they invoke? The blessings of the Lord. Look, John's greeting here is like, grace and mercy and peace would be with us, right? He, Paul 
constantly starts his greetings his, to these churches that he writes with grace and peace to you. And so all these Christian greetings could often be greetings that would invoke the blessings of the Lord. And he's saying, I don't think you want to invoke the blessings of the Lord on those who are working against him. Don't do that. And I think that's what he has in mind. It's not detailed, his instructions here on this greeting and what is and doesn't count as greeting someone who's a false teacher and their false teaching, but there's a, a, a clear warning. Be careful here. You, you don't want to take part in, in their wicked works. In other words, he's, be careful because you don't want to be in league. Join them in solidarity with those who are anti-Christ. And again, I think that John is getting at that this is a church-wide application. The, the church should, should not be welcoming or, or even greeting with some sort of blessing, supporting, in league with, in solidarity with those who deny central claims of the faith, such as Jesus has come in the flesh. Don't welcome them in. Don't greet them as if everything's okay. Everything is not okay. They're antichrists. And so instead, abide in the true teaching of Jesus. And when you do that, you couldn't want to support this. Receiving in homes may not be seen today as it was then. It's, it's probably not seen as the same sense of solidarity and support of, of ministry and mission as it was then. But do we not then still take this word and think, man, there should be some care with how we treat those who come in the name of Christ. And some care and thinking about, well, what, what actually do they think about Jesus? What are they claiming and teaching about Jesus? And we're careful to make sure we're not supporting the, the ones who are not saying the right things about Jesus. Because And then we'd be supporting Antichrist again. So we want to take some care there. How especially pertinent is this in our age where we support things, stand in solidarity with things electronically, on social medias out there, that we think through this carefully and we, we make sure that we're careful that we don't kind of haphazardly support false teachers and false teaching and, and give them another platform with which their false teaching could then be sent out. Their mission could go forward. We don't want to give them a place of ministry launch and support if they're teaching something different about Jesus. And so again, I think the warning is, let's be careful with those things. Now, we can know difference in teaching between those who are teaching the true teaching of Christ, as John told them to abide in, and those who aren't. Again, because we have the word. We have what we need. And so we don't need to be like, man, how are we going to figure all this out? There's so much out there. Like, we have what we need in the Word. It is to be the very soul of a church. And we're going to be, we need to be people of this Word so that we can see when this is going on, when there's false teaching and false teaching about Jesus and false teachers, we can know the difference because we have the Word in front of us. We can know Jesus and be confident in Him. Now, John kind of leaves it at that, doesn't he? This is a really brief letter. He doesn't go into much detail and say, here's exactly how this plays out in terms of hospitality. What, you know, how far into your house do they get before it's like, wait, you've received them? All right, what greeting words can you say before it's like you've gone too far, you've crossed? He doesn't give us that detail. He, he keeps the command, as he does this letter, fairly brief. And so we're kind of left to, oh, I don't know, we have a few things to be careful with, and we're not sure how all this works out on the ground. But John is brief here, and we want to take him at his word. But his greeting, his ending, is, is also grief. It's instructive and brief, right? He says in verse 12 and 13, Though I have much to write to you, I'd rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. And the children of your elect sister greet you. I think 
John's longing here to be with them, to see them face to face, is, is only a natural one for one who is like an, a, a shepherd to them, right? He wants to be with the sheep. He calls himself the elder earlier. In other words, he, he has that kind of role in their midst. They, they know him. They, they are familiar with him. He's, he's given them vital ministry. He wants to be with them, and he, he knows that he has this affection for them. And I think what he's saying in verse 12 when he's saying, I, I long to be with you face to face, I hope that that's happened. That would be better. He's saying something a little bit like what Paul said in Philippians chapter 1. Paul said, man, to depart and be with Christ, oh, that would be far better. Right? I think he's saying something like that. To, to be with you, face to face with you, that would be better. But it seems as if this shows us that the, the matter at hand is urgent to John. So urgent that he would say, I need to get this out. Even though I'd rather be face to face, I need to get this out there to them so that they can watch, so that they can uh, not receive false teachers and false teaching, so that I doesn't gain a foothold within the church. And because this matter is urgent, he writes to them, he gives them encouragements, he gives them warnings. But notice again in his final greeting that there is no alarm. How long to be with you face to face? And he writes with confidence, even. Look at the end of verse 12. I hope to come to you so that what? What is he confident in? That our joy might be complete. Joy? He just said that many deceivers are going out. He's telling them not to welcome them. That doesn't sound like a happy place. It sounds like we're really strict and we're really concerned and we, we don't ever have a smile on our face. What, what joy could you be talking about? I mean, is it just that they are just happy to see John again? I think there's more to it than, than that. Many deceivers are out and about, but what has John done? He's learned to trust Jesus. And Jesus told him there'd be many false prophets. There'd be many come in his name. It's just as Jesus said. Jesus also said that he'd build his church and that the gates of hell wouldn't prevail against it. So there are maybe may many deceivers out and about and we do need to watch and be careful about their teaching, but he's certain that Jesus is going to build his church and that those deceivers aren't going to prevail ultimately against it. And so he can write, yeah, I want to come with you face to face that our, our joy might be complete. What's his confidence in? Jesus. He's even in the midst of, I think, again, another church, the children of your elect sister, probably John's church, greets you. He's even in the midst of it, saying, Jesus is sustaining his church. It's just as he said, here I am in the midst of brothers and sisters that are greeting you over there. We were all once in darkness, and now we're in light. It's just as Jesus said. There are many deceivers out there, and here we are still standing, just as Jesus said. He writes certain of their joy when they come face to face, because he's certain that Jesus is going to sustain his church. He'd heard these powerful words from Jesus when he said, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. What are you going to do then? You're going to go make disciples of all the nations. And what's going to happen? I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. He'd heard that promise. He knows Jesus is with him. He knows as he writes to this elect lady and her children that Jesus is with them, that he is the one sustaining them and keeping them, and he is, his presence is with them, and so he writes with confidence. We're going to have joy when we meet face to face. Now, we need to be a church who walk in the truth who walk in the truth by loving one another well, upholding the commands of God in our love for him and our love for one another. We need to be a church who watches. We watch together so that we don't 
aren't deceived by false teachers and false teaching. We need to be careful with who we receive and, and how we greet and how we receive and welcome one another. But we need to be a church that is certain that everything is going just as Jesus said. And that surely he is the one who is with us even to the end of the age. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you so much for being like us, for putting on flesh and coming down to this planet that you made and walking among these people that you designed and receiving abuse and all kinds of evil from them and receiving that all for their sake. You are so strange that you love people who are so hateful toward you. We are not like you in many ways, but you became like us in all ways except one. You did not sin, and you lived a holy life in our place. Jesus, we praise you for that. And I'm so thankful that not only were you the very word of God in the flesh, but you also left behind through the writings of your apostles your words, your deeds, and all of those things that came before you in the Old Testament, what we call the Bible. We have your word, God, and I praise you. I think it's okay to just pray a prayer of thanks that we are a part of a body that is going to lift up and exalt your word every single week. Every Sunday, we are not going to hear new or strange or innovative or progressive things, we're going to hear a really old message that's been told again and again and again for 2,000 years, and we're going to keep telling it, because what do we have but you, Jesus? We have need, we have brokenness, and you are the answer to all that we need, and so I praise you for this people in this place and for these pastors who are singularly devoted to your word and exposing us to it week in and week out. And I don't have any fear that someone is going to, to step up before these people and say something that contradicts mere Christianity and these ancient truths, the faith once and for all handed down to the saints. I'm secure in that, God. But I also pray that we would protect ourselves from antichrist voices and that we would be diligent to make sure we think through who we give a microphone to speak into our hearts on a daily or weekly basis. We hear a lot of things when we leave this building that may or may not conform to your truth and to your word, and it's okay that we hear those things. We should expose ourselves to all kinds of different things. We need to understand who people are and where they're coming from, but at the same time, God, we need to fill our own souls with your word, with your good food every day. That's what Christians do. And so I pray that you would move among us and that you would draw us deeply into your word every day and that we would look at your face, God, and remember who you are and remember who we are and that we would abide in you, Jesus. And we praise you 
Last of all, that uh, even though that sounds scary and there are all kinds of temptations uh, of the mind and of the flesh, we rejoice in the fact that you are going to win, Jesus, and your church may not be on top now and may not look like the dominant force in the universe, but it is the only one that's going to last. It's the only institution that will last, Jesus, and so uh, we take confidence in you and we have hope and we pray that you would continue to draw us to yourselves. If there's anyone here who doesn't know who you are, who doesn't love you, who has not heard you speak through your word and this good news of the gospel, God, would you open up their ears and let them lay down their lives and acknowledge their sin and see your death on the cross in their place in your resurrection and let them become your disciples today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Just like John closes by saying it's better to see you face to face in his letter. Um, we have letters from God and one day we get to see him face to face in Zion. So let's stand and sing as we close. Mm -hmm.